Welcome to the Podcast of Ideas. The Battle of Ideas Festival took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The sessions were recorded and you can find all the discussions and topics covered at the festival released exclusively on this podcast. The debate you're about to hear is called From Zero Hours to Apprenticeships, Young People at Work. Claire Fox is in the chair and we'd like to say a special thanks to the Federation of Awarding Bodies who partnered with us to produce this session. I'm Claire Fox, I'm the director of the Academy of Ideas and the session's called From Zero Hours to Apprenticeships, Young People at Work. I was very keen to do this because um, with an election on the horizon, you will notice whenever anybody talks about young people, they will all simply say, what we need is more apprenticeships. And I agree with that, but every party says it, and in the end, not a lot changes. It's also the case that people in politics at all levels always say that what they're going to do is make sure that young people have maximum opportunities. And they say it, and everybody nods, and you just think, what does all that mean then? And there's an assumption that every young person in the country is going to go to... Well, you know, we ha- it's a good idea to get 50% of young people to go to universities at the same time as saying they'll honour apprenticeships. But there's somehow a mismatch between all this kind of talk about young people and what's really going on. So we wanted to talk about intelligently, have a discussion about the issue of apprenticeships. We've mentioned zero hours because an awful lot of young people are now, despite discussions about skills revolution, apprenticeships, young people staying on and getting their uh, skills enhanced and so on and so forth, ending up working in a gig economy on zero hours in unskilled work, very vulnerable. So we thought we'd dig a bit deeper. And who better to do that with than to team up with the Federation of Awarding Bodies? And we were delighted that they prepared to work with us on this. They've just done another debate, which was, um, are too many people going to university, effectively, which is kind of a sister panel of this. Um, But I think these issues are not discussed enough or deeply enough, so it's good to be here. Let me introduce a fabulous panel. Um, We're going to actually, first of all, hear from Tom Buick, who is actually the Chief Executive of the Federation of Awarding Bodies. He's also the founder of the Transatlantic Apprenticeship Exchange Forum, and he's got a very distinguished and long CV, which I'm not going to go through. But one of the things I think that's interesting about Tom, and he, he, he runs a very interesting podcast which I did and therefore now listen to, if you know what I mean. So, and I, skills, it's world. skills world. And I actually think that, you know, there's not... I taught in further education many years ago, and I don't think there's just enough discussion on this area. But Tom um, is passionate about the value of qualifications because he left school with one O-level and then had to re-get back into it. And I think that that actually is somebody who kind of has got a feel for this subject that goes beyond just talking about it. So... Can we give Tom a warm welcome, please? Thanks, Claire. And, um, oh, you're, no, you're not stop. No. stop. No, don't start yet. Oh, you're doing all the introductions first. Okay. I'm doing all of them. Yeah. That's what I get on with. You're very interesting, but not yet. Right, Rob, <laughs> Rob Nitch, who I was getting lost, he was following me as I was getting lost. Anyway, he's a chief, op- I didn't know who he was, chief op- operations officer at the Institute of Apprenticeships and Technical Education, a former professional engineer at the, in the British Army, and was, in fact, the Army's personnel officer, uh, HR officer. Uh, he was in charge of the Army's extensive 
apprenticeship scheme, so that will be interesting. He's also a fellow of the CIPD and of the uh, Institute of Mechanical Engineering, Institution of Mechanical Engineering, who actually we worked with at the Academy of Ideas and did a big project with 16 to 18-year-olds in relation to our debating matters competition. So I'm always interested in having fellows from IMACI. Anyway, can we give them a warm welcome, first time at the battle? <coughs> we have Harriet Bishop with us, who actually I first met when she was doing debating matters, um, uh, and when she was a, a, a sixth former. Um, and Harriet has never been frightened of saying what she thinks, so we thought we'd get her onto the panel. She's an astrophysics student at the University of Glasgow, She's uh, um, volunteered at previous Battle of Ideas festivals and, as I say, took part in debating matters whilst at, at school. Uh, last year, she completed a year in industry with EDT at uh, Gill Instruments Limited. But she, she's one of those people who's combined, therefore, some work experience um, and being at university, but also she's become vocal about schools promoting apprenticeships. So it's really great to have you on the panel, Harriet. Give her a warm welcome. And then Dr. Ruth Meisbula, who is a senior lecturer in education studies at the Institute of Education at the University of Derby, the author most recently of The Minorisation of Higher Education Students, and also the main author of World Class Apprenticeship Standards, uh, which he uh, um, uh, completed for Pearson Education. And Ruth is passionate about and uh, an expert in looking at these issues and also has an international knowledge of the topic and very significantly I'd like to thank her at this moment for this she's part of the Derby Salon that tries to get debate and discussion going around Derby um, but can we give uh, Ruth a warm welcome please <laughs> okay you can go now Tom thank you very much indeed Claire, and thank you to everybody for um, giving up your late Sunday afternoons to uh, come to this panel I think as Claire said actually you know we're at a uh, a phase in our national conversation, in our sort of political discourse, where actually this whole question of the intergenerational uh, inequality gap is is getting ever and ever more front and centre. And you know, someone now that's uh, technically classified, I guess, as Generation X. I was uh, I was born in the early 1970s. I see everything, it seems, these days through the prism of uh, my 14-year-old son, <laughs> who's, uh, who, you know, in 1987 I was, I was 14, and that was the year that I left, as Claire mentioned, school with that 1-0 level. And I think, you know, when I look through the lens of what my son's going through today and sort of where I was uh, back in 1987, I've sort of come to the view that, that, and, you know, indeed many of the stats back this up, and I'm not going to kind of quote um, too many of them because it's not that kind of session, um, but, you know, the fact is, when I left school in 1987, um, we just 1-0 level. That was certainly in the, the working-class town in the Midlands where I grew up. That wasn't unusual, you know. I mean, it would be today uh, if I left with just one GCSE, but it wasn't unusual then. And the reason it wasn't unusual is because two-thirds of my state comprehensive school at that time didn't leave with anything like two or three or four, even then my five O-levels or uh, CSEs. I mean, Boris Johnson went to Eton, of course, we all know that. Um, I went to Eton too, but it was Eton Comprehensive School in Nuneaton, so we had a slightly different experience um, educationally. But the point is, in those days, you know, the youth labour market was very different from 
the labor market today. Of course, it was tightening. Uh, unemployment was about, uh, uh, youth unemployment was about 20%. But it wasn't unusual for young people like myself to have a Saturday job. And indeed, when I left school with one over, what I did is I converted that Saturday job, pushing trolleys at Asda, into a full-time job and did that for a year or two and then came back into education via night school after doing some voluntary work abroad. But the point was, in those days, um, you know, there were these kind of, although it wasn't formalised, there were sort of life rafts that young, particularly young working-class people who maybe hadn't uh, succeeded uh, first time around, they had. Local authorities funded adult education courses. Um, employers had a different attitude, actually, towards employing young people in those days. And, of course, because only 7% of people in the labour market were graduates anyway under the age of 30, there wasn't this uh, assumption amongst employers that I'll only employ graduates, even in non-graduate jobs. So the labour market was structured in very, very different ways um, 30 years ago. But since the financial crash in 2008, the biggest losers from that whole um, terrible kind of affliction, really, on our global economy, driven by, obviously, the subprime crisis in the United States, um, has been, and again, the stats back this up, has been those between the age of about 20 and 39, who are, on average, paid £800 a year less than they were uh, a decade ago. So we've had a whole age of stagnation uh, for any uh, income group, uh, you know, about 60% actually uh, of those um, that are earning in the economy now. But that has disproportionately impacted on those who are in their 20s uh, and their 30s. And what does that actually, you know, what, what has that actually meant in practice? Because you can kind of quote the statistics in terms of um, uh, earnings. But what it has meant is that, in effect, the only route to wealth, particularly for anybody under the age of 40 in the last 15 years, has been primarily through either, one, the bank of mum and dad, if you're fortunate to have the bank of mum and dad to help you on the uh, housing ladder, or two, you've got access to some other kind of capital or assets that can give you that kind of um, uplift in terms of your income and your living standards. And again, it's interesting when you look at the... Um, you know, where people are getting their wealth from these days, in the last 20 years, uh, real incomes have only risen by about 16%. But actually, because of the housing market, particularly the housing bubble, people's sort of on-paper wealth, if you own a home, uh, has gone up by 160%, which kind of brings me back, therefore, then, to the um, intergenerational inequality gap. If you're fortunate enough to have been a baby boomer, so just born after the... Uh, Second World War, or even, frankly, someone in my generation, so-called Generation X, born um, just after 1970, then you are far more likely, A, to have access to assets, two times more likely to be on the housing ladder or own your own home, and, uh, you know, you're certainly more likely to have access to credit and other um, financial instruments than if you're part of Generation Y or, or, or Generation Z. So this inequality is sort of self-perpetuating, and it's driven by inequalities in the labour market, insecurity in the labour market, in particular um, the 40% of under 30-year-olds that are actually in receipt of zero-hour contracts. Now, in my day, you know, we've got to be honest with ourselves, you know, zero-hour contracts in some form or other have always been around in terms of things like <coughs> seasonal work, um, that was an aspect of the youth labour market 30 years ago. 
But the difference is now is that the, the, you know, the progression on from seasonal jobs, for example, to full-time and rewarding work, perhaps with trade union membership or with holiday pay and sick pay, that no longer exists. It's zero-hour contracts or nothing else you know, for many um, young people. So that's just, I think, just skirting around the issues there, Claire, about why, you know, when we talk about the intergenerational uh, inequality gap, it's very real. It disproportionately hits those under the age of 35. And it's ultimately, I'm afraid, tied up with the inequality between wealth begetting wealth via asset uh, accumulation and the fact that real incomes over the last 20, 25 years have stalled and in some cases, as we've seen for that younger age group, actually gone into reverse. Okay, great start. Thanks, Tom. Well, thank you very much for inviting me this evening. Um, and I hope that it's axiomatic that we're all different and that this extends to the way that we learn, um, what our preferences are, and how we develop through life. Now, like Tom, um, I also have children, although I think mine are a little older than his, um, or perhaps he's just seeking to lie about his age. I'll, I'll leave you to... <laughs> reflect on that. Um, anyway, I think it's worth sticking to the, the theme. Um, you know, my boys are aged over 17, of whom they're three. Uh, they've all had different education experiences. Two did A-levels, uh, went to university. One's still there. Uh, the other has floundered and is now doing a form of apprenticeship. Uh, my other boy rebelled at the prospect of GCSEs. He absolutely rejected the prospect of A-levels. Um, and he's now also thriving on an apprenticeship. Now, I don't think that my children are unique. Um, we're all different, and we respond differently and better to certain educational stimuli than others. With apprenticeships, a raft of other vocational qualifications, T-levels just around the corner, my point is that we're not lacking with opportunity to create other than academic pathways for young children but we need them to embrace these pathways if we're to give everyone the opportunity to realise their potential, given that we're all different. Now, this is not to suggest that uh, we privilege one form of education over another, rather that we have a system with both vocational and academic elements. And I think I'm right in saying that the, the United Kingdom has 30 universities rated amongst the top 200 in the world. A fantastic achievement. But the balance will only be a reasonable one if there's an equal excellence in vocationally orientated education. Now, amongst the complaints about the previous apprenticeship system, so I'm talking perhaps uh, seven or eight years ago, that it was, a failing, um, it was failing to give employers the prepared employees that they wanted. And it's perhaps instructive that it's been suggested that as many as 20% of those registered as being apprentices at that time didn't know that they were on an apprenticeship. So the standards-based apprenticeship system was introduced about five years ago, and its aim is to, to attend to this, to provide a job with genuine training. And the template that's being applied is that which was recommended in two reports. One is the Richard Review, and the other one is characterised as the Sainsbury Review. Now, the standards apprenticeship vision is that apprenticeships should be available across the economy, not just rooted in traditional industries. It's that they're relevant with an employer specification at their heart, which some have characterised as moving to a demand-led system. <clears throat> so apprenticeships are now designed so they're accessible to the whole workforce for all levels of occupation, from entry level um, to master's level. 
And the impact of the latter really started to be noticeable from the academic year 1718, so this is 18 months ago, when only 5% of those who are on the older framework apprenticeship system were undertaking apprenticeship at a higher level than A-levels, but 20% of people who were entering onto a standards, the new base system, were doing an apprenticeship at higher than um, A-level standard. Now, also within the revision, there's a requirement that there's a formalised collaboration between the apprentice, the employer, and the training partner, and that they have quality safeguards, such as minimum length, at least 20% off-the-job training content, and an independent assessment. And an assessment that's specific to the acquisition of the knowledge, skills, and experience needed to be occupationally competent in the field to which the apprenticeship applies. And where there has been a fall in apprenticeship numbers, this has been on the old-style frameworks, not the new standards-based apprenticeships. And from March 2018, the number of starts on standards exceeded that on, um, on frameworks for the first time, and the gap has continued to grow. So the current position is that there are now more than 500 new apprenticeship standards available to be used. Over 5,000 employees have been engaged in their specification and just shy of half a million individuals have started on a standards-based apprenticeship journey. Now, we're still in early days in terms of completions, and understandably, there are things in the rollout of a new system um, that need to be refined and improved. But the initial responses for employers are really positive about the product, and that's also consistent with the drop-off in starts on frameworks. So where's the challenge? I think it's perhaps in perceptions. With often much talk about the levy rather than the realities of the underlying programme and the changes that have been made, amongst the questions we might ask are, are we bringing the vocation opportunities truly to the attention of our young people? Are we explaining modern apprenticeships sufficiently well? Are key opinion formers listening at home and in society more generally? And are we helping young people to truly understand their aptitudes? It's still interesting that strong perceptions remain about what an apprenticeship is and that a historically anchored view can predominate. And if we can collectively overcome this, might we be enabling more young people to realise their potential? And might the economy be better served? And especially at a time when there appears to be a general agreement that there's a shortfall in skilled labour. Research also suggests that it's highly likely that apprentices would be better paid in the first half of their working life than their graduate contemporaries. So the potential benefits are for the employee and the employer. And the nation will be getting a better return from its investment in education and its educational inheritance. And I know how difficult perceptions can be. I did not manage to persuade my boys to seriously look at an apprenticeship despite the opportunities. They had to discover that for themselves and with the intendant pain and accompanying debt. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> right, loads to dig in there uh, afterwards, Rob. Thank you very much. That was great. Uh, Harriet. Okay. Um, okay, so it, it seems that nowadays uh, most students are choosing the university route over apprenticeships and a record number of students are attending university whilst numbers of apprenticeships start declining. Um, attending university has always been a good way for people to move up uh, the socio-economic ladder and a sure way to find um, 
to land a, a high-paying, skilled job. Um, statistically, by attending university, you're not only more likely to have a better job and be more well-paid, but to be happier and healthier. Um, but there are more, multiple reports now that, um, that present a more gloomy outlook on the fate of university graduates. Um, alarmingly, nearly half of graduates' first jobs don't even require a degree at all. And of those same students, a fifth will never actually ever use their degree in a professional capacity. Um, so that's not obviously a good start in paying back their £50,000 debts that they've just got themselves into. Um, so this has to tell us something, and among other reasons, it tells us that universities themselves are failing to provide the skills needed to enter into these industries. Universities are now becoming corporate organisations driven by business plans and are in fierce competition with each other to, um, for the students and the fees that they'll be paying. Um, so this, this gradual privatisation is causing universities to lose their sense of public responsibility and focus more on supplying the demand for degrees with little thought to the career prospects that await students at the other end. Um, apart from degree programmes with built-in industry placement, they're not really doing enough to create the skilled workforce in which we need. Um, the other option to take an apprenticeship seems more attractive in this sense. So um, surely if a company um, is investing their time and money into training a student, then we can be confident that they're, mo they're motivated to um, produce someone that they would be happy to work for them and have all the skills that they need for that industry. Um, they get cheaper labour and get to mould their future employees, but, and students, even though they earn a small salary, will avoid racking up all of this debt. So in the long run, it's obviously going to be better. Um, so why is it that a lot of students aren't actually considering apprenticeships as an option? Um, I mean, I would say, coming from the school system, the main problem is the attitudes towards apprenticeships at the moment are somewhat negative, and they seem, their apprenticeships are seen more as pathways for less academically inclined students um, who can't get into the university, and it's thought that those who complete apprenticeships won't actually end up earning the same amount as those who get a degree. Um, as well as this, the careers advice in schools is... is bias towards university route because obviously um, a large percentage of their cohort going to university is going to reflect more positively on the school and a lot of people even if they're if they're academic or even if they're not so much academically inclined are now off to university with no real thought about what job they might be getting afterwards and they're just basically being thrusted through the system um, so at this point, you might be asking yourselves why I'm at university if I've painted this much of a gloomy picture um, of that and how apprenticeships are a lot better. Um, but the truth is that I think there's still so much that needs to be done to make apprenticeships a lot more attractive and a lot better. Um, so obviously, I think everyone's still under the impression that um, people that get degrees are better um, and more employable. Um, there's... Not so much of a good choice. I, mean, I did have a look at all of the apprenticeships that were on offer and either would have to move to some really strange town in the middle of nowhere um, where I don't know anybody. Um, I might, might go through an apprenticeship and get a qualification, become very skilled at something that I actually might end up not liking. Um, I think in, the sense, in that sense, a degree um, gives people a few more options as to whether they want to go. For me, maybe if I want to... Um, 
in STEM subjects, going to finance or engineering or research. So um, it's more broad in that sense. Um, so in essence, I want to just make the point that there's a lot more choice when it comes to university, and it's, it's really a shame because, especially for my subject, um, which is in STEM, it's, it's essential, really, that you get the right work experience because, you know, you're not going to be working off theory all the time. You're going to be actually doing things. And so apprenticeships, in that sense, are going to be a, a lot better option for people like me. Um, so just to summarise, I really do believe that the, the process of going through the apprenticeship is better. It's better and it prepares students more for the world of work, especially for all the practical jobs. Um, it's just a shame that there's not enough higher and degree apprenticeships that can elevate students into the well-paid and hired, um, higher skilled positions. And we really need to work on selling it both more to um, both companies and students as a system that they can both really benefit from. Um, but they need a lot more invest in, uh, investment um, and uh, we want some more degree apprenticeships that are going to be partnered with better universities because, I mean, for me, uh, I was looking at a degree apprenticeship is a very attractive way to earn your degree for free or will be getting paid, but actually I'd be end ending up going to the universities that maybe are not so high in the charts and that, that really did put me off as well. Um, so I would like to see a few more options in terms of going into, into that and um, maybe make it more attractive to people that are more academic as well as people that aren't with me. Um, yeah. Okay, thank, thank you. you very much, Harriet. Great. <laughs> I think you raise a lot of the dilemmas that people think about in terms of uh, when they approach this, so that would be great to go over in a minute. And then Ruth, finally. Well, thank you, Claire, for inviting me to speak here today. I'd like to start off by defining what an apprenticeship actually is. An apprenticeship is a contract of employment and training between the employer and the apprentice, and it's supposed to involve substantial, and I mean substantial training, both on and off the job. If that's an apprenticeship, I am a huge supporter and advocate of apprenticeships. But, and as a big but, I think we got it fundamentally wrong in England in terms of our apprenticeships. And that's why we don't see what I think, at least, any significant developments in, in the apprenticeship sector. We're just going to give two reasons why I think that's the case. The first one is we got it the wrong way around. I think it's not apprenticeships that will kickstart an economy it's actually a productive economy that will increase the apprenticeship numbers. In 1563, when apprenticeship training programs were established in the statute of the artificer as a seven-year training program, it was to provide a skilled workforce for a productive economy. But today, well, in those times, what was driving the apprenticeship, the development of apprenticeships, was the economic, economic demand. Today, what is driving apprenticeships is the government and training providers. And training providers are FE colleges, <coughs> HE maybe, and private providers. So we don't have a productive economy. Phil Mullen, the author <coughs> and economist, has outlined that very clearly <coughs> in his book, The Creative Destruction that we actually, at the moment, or rather since the 1970s, stuck in an economic 
economically declining um, or declining economy. And he says that 99% of the businesses in England have either very little or no productivity growth at all. So we, are, we don't have productivity. So I think it's important to recognize the fundamental economic differences today and the idea that apprenticeships can in any major way kickstart an economic growth, which has been an economy which has been declining since the 1970s, is a misconception, I think. And just to add one more caveat to that point, 70% of apprenticeships today are in the service sector. So we're talking retail, administrative, care, food, food and drinks industry, for example. Now, these apprenticeships might add a social value, but they don't necessarily contribute to national growth. And that's an important factor to consider, I think. The second point I wanted to make, just to get us discussing the topic, is apart from a few, a few exceptions where we have good apprenticeship training programs, I'm talking, just to give an example, of the motor vehicle industry, Rolls-Royce, engineering, the BAE system, which offered apprenticeship programs of four to five years, or construction, classic industry. Apart from those good examples, there are far too many, what I call, fake apprenticeships in England. And I'll give you a few examples of what I think they are. Um, Rob, you mentioned that we have half a million apprenticeships in England, 500,000. Out of this half a million, 250, so 50%, are apprentices who are either 25 years old or older. And most of these people are already working in the job. They might have been doing the job for many, many years. So why I'm calling these fake apprenticeships is because what we're doing, we are crediting existing skills. And not what I said before in the definition of an apprenticeship where you want to increase, substantially increase the skills of that apprentice. So it's a fake apprenticeship in that sense. The Sutton Trust has published a report in 2017, which I think it was called um, Better Us. And they said that two thirds of the apprenticeships are at the moment are with existing employees. So fake apprenticeships, that's one example of it. We are converting existing jobs into apprenticeships. The second example of a fake apprenticeships is that we, and universities are guilty of that, turn existing programs into apprenticeships. Just one example, the postgraduate certificate in higher education. Anybody has worked in higher education, you know when you start lecturing, you have to do a one-year training course of how to teach. We've always had this. It's a level seven postgraduate degree, and in some universities, they're now being turned into apprenticeships. So it's existing programs we are converting. It's not new, new apprenticeship programs. And the last point, why I think far too many apprenticeships are fake, is because we are accrediting low skills instead of actually substantial technical skills we're talking about. Now, part of my job, I talk to lots of young people, and they somewhere in the past have done a level two, a level three, or a level four apprenticeships. And the stories are almost horrific in terms of what they get. 
Some have done a hairdressing apprenticeship for a year and have learned how to decently cut hair, hopefully. That's what they tell me. But others who do apprenticeship maybe in business or administration. A recent example, she said she did a le level three apprenticeship in business management. She was a year in the company. All she was given was a handbook of what her job entailed. She did not have a mentor in her workplace to accompany, accompany that apprenticeship. And the training provider, kindly enough, visited her once a month to see how she was doing in the company. There was no off-the-job training. So again, low-level skills and poor quality is why I think we have a lot of um, fake apprenticeships. So just to round up, I think apprenticeships are the right way forward. I totally support them. But if we do want to take them serious, I think we need to develop first a productive economy, and then we'll see the apprenticeship numbers rise. Thank you. A nice bit of challenge there from Ruth, right? It's basically, it's all rubbish. No, um, but I, actually, that was really helpful, Ruth, because it actually raises what some of the concerns are, because I don't know that people not signing up to do apprenticeships have worked out that they're fake apprenticeships, but there has been some scepticism amongst young people that maybe this is just not quite the same, because it doesn't feel like the same as the kind of thriving atmosphere of apprenticeships of the past, which is not to want to romanticise that either. Just, just one story, um, because I'm going to ask... So just just to warn you, I'm, I'm just going to ask uh, Tom and, and, and Rob particularly to just comment on the fake apprenticeship things or the economy things, anything you've got to say. Not on them, but, you know, anything you want to come back on. But just one, one uh, story is, which is, is more in line with some of the things that Harriet was looking at. One person told me a story where a sixth form was being shown round a major engineering of a major company. And the company's showing them around and kind of all these high school, you know, everyone's kind of working. They're saying, you know, look at this. And they're very proudly thinking, it's great, we've got these sixth formers in. And then they overheard the teacher say to the pupils, right, if you don't work hard, you could end up here. And obviously, that wasn't the aim of the visit, <laughs> broadly speaking. Right? As it happens, obviously, most of the people on that shop floor, who, by the way, many of them, had degrees in engineering. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. They were certainly earning a lot of money. But it was a typical sort of thing, which is you think, look, do you want to do that? So that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of some of the tensions that we have about a kind of snobbery about uh, uh, working in, in certain areas of the economy. But if I can challenge Harriet on this one, I also don't think universities should be about churning out well-qualified workers either, because actually that should be somewhere where you can have the life of the mind. So how do we retain that aspect to universities whilst having university apprenticeship? Plenty to tap me on or think about or whatever. So, Tom, just anything you want to pick up at this point, uh, any, any one of those Let's things. come back on um, fake apprenticeships, although obviously, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I'll leave it to, to Rob because he's, you know, he's running the institute that's now responsible for ensuring that we have got quality apprenticeships. And, uh, you know, I will just say that I think the depiction of um, low-quality fake apprenticeships sort of six, seven years down the line from, you know, the, the sort of shocking headlines of Morrison's offering 16-week shelf-stacking apprenticeships. I do think 
we've come on um, a long way from that uh, period. I mean, there's no question about that. And there was, I mean, I remember giving select committee evidence, when was it, in 2011, about what were then called programme apprenticeships. So essentially these were students, you know, in um, hospitality and construction, catering uh, areas of, um, uh, of our FE colleges being called apprentices, but actually they didn't have a job and they weren't being paid. So, you know, I'd absolutely agree that um, an apprenticeship, first and foremost, is an employment contract between an employer and the apprentice as the employee and is paid the relevant apprenticeship wage. But I think where we've moved on in recent years is a recognition that apprenticeship is also a very special kind of education in the workplace. And actually a lot of work has gone into the idea of these competency standards, which are not the same as a university uh, tutorial uh, piece of um, uh, curriculum. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's about underpinning uh, knowledge, skills, and behaviours that make someone uh, competent in a particular uh, role. And Rob, I'm sure, will say more about that in terms of the Institute's role in developing up to 700 standards. I also just want to really um, agree with, though, the point about, in the end, you know, the route to higher living standards in any economy is a more productive economy. You know, Switzerland sends only 27% of its... Um, uh, post-16-year-olds uh, to university, but two-thirds of its 16-year-olds go into highly skilled apprenticeships, and Switzerland as a small economy is up there in the value chain in terms of niche products and services, and it innovates and exports those niche products and services around the world. And that is the demand side that then drives the need and the behaviours from employers for higher value skills. And what I was sort of really saying, Claire, in my opening gambit, and why actually I sort of stayed clear of the apprenticeship debate and getting too much into the supply side at that point, is actually a lot of the answers to these, these vexed problems we're talking about, particularly in relation to job insecurity for young people, stagnating wages, what um, Fingold and Soskis, the two economists at the LSC, 30 years ago now, called Britain's low skills, low pay equilibrium, until we have policies that essentially try and break us out of that logjam, actually you can pump as much money as you like into higher education. I mean, look at the, you know, the post-18 uh, budget. We spend £20 billion a year as a country um, on post-18 education. 80% of that £20 billion goes to universities. The other 20% is split between further education colleges, adult skills training, which, by the way, has been cut by 37% since 2011, and it goes on apprenticeships. And the challenge for, for colleagues like Rob is he's really rowing against the tide with the apprenticeship levy budget, which is, what, £2.4 billion for England. But in the last 10 years, the government's own studies show that employers have invested £5 billion less in the workforce. So even with the levy collecting £2.5 billion from employers, it only makes up half of the amount of money that's actually been taken out of the system. So you start to see there isn't the investment there in skills and in the workforce that there should be. And it doesn't matter how good the quality of the apprenticeships are, if you don't address that problem, then you know, we're, not, we're not going to make the progress we want to see. OK, so I'm going to come to you, Rob, then I'll come to the audience, and then we can come back to Harriet and Reid after that. But anyway, Rob. Yeah, I would... Just speaking to Sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would agree with Tom's characterisation that uh, perhaps some of those things that Ruth was referring to were very present and very axiomatic in, in, in apprenticeships in the past. 
but we've worked really hard to change that. And I think the big thing that has happened, and I mentioned it a bit in my, in my talk, is that apprenticeships a little bit of time ago were defined by training providers. And, and the sort of approach was you can have any colour, but it's black. And actually, the big change that's taken now and is taking place across the whole of the technical education landscape is that employers and businesses are defining what they want in apprenticeships. And they're coming together, and they're coming to us and saying, we want an apprenticeship. And given that 80% of our economy is in the service sector, it's not surprising that 70% of apprenticeships or emergent apprenticeships are going to be in that, in that area because uh, it's following the employer market, and that's exactly what we would expect to see. Um, interestingly, 25% of apprentices starting on schemes now are, are starting at level four and above. So, so that's where they're, you know, they're pitching in. And, and I did mention again in my talk that massive change from where it was in the past, which was about 2%, to where we were in 1718, which was 20%, and that is now about 25%. So I, I, I would... Uh, understand the characterization against the historical apprenticeship system, I wouldn't, wouldn't recognise it, and I don't think the statistics support it against what's being delivered today. The other point that um, Ruth did mention was, was that of whether apprenticeships should be used to upskill the current workforce or not. What, do, what defines an apprenticeship must be at least a year long, um, it uh, must have 20% off-the-job training. Uh, nowadays, it must have an independent assessment, um, and there are a couple of other things as well, but those essentially characterise what a standards-based apprenticeship is. And actually, if we want to keep our, um, our workforce moving and keep the agility in our workforce, we need to upskill people in work as well as appropriately skill people coming into work. And actually, you've only got to look back at what's happened you know, in this nation over the last... 20 years in terms of uh, large industries coming to an end and people needing to reskill. Now, just to characterise this and try and bring it to life, why should somebody who's not worked in a steel mill or a, or, a, or a coal mine not be able to undertake an apprenticeship to retrain, to become, to move into the digital sector or, or something else? Surely that's a great use of an apprenticeship. And I think that it's really important that we don't get, that we don't just characterise it on people coming coming into work and some of the people in the gig economy will need to come into work now they won't survive for the whole of their lives on the gig economy so why shouldn't they at the age of 30 be able to embrace an apprenticeship as a way into work and to step and to step forward so i think one of the real strengths of our current program is that actually it's sport for all it really can address everything so i think that's uh, all the way across the economy and all those that are in it I think it's really important. Okay, great. Anyone want to speak? Um, quite a few. Right, okay. Um, that's a good start. Right, um, so can I start at the back, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah. Okay, I'm just a little bit confused. Um, uh, just on the last point there about... Uh, Ruth made the point that um, a lot of the um, apprenticeships are actually going to people who are already in work. So not new people, but already people in work who've already got jobs. But the point was just made that um, actually the upskilling is about moving from one industry to another, a uh, gig economy to a, uh, you know, upskilling into a proper job. So the question really is, which is it? Because from what I remember vaguely reading, 
um, reports on this, it is the case that employers, rather than in the past, they may or may not invest money in training. Now that the levy system is coming, the apprenticeship is coming, what they're doing really is rather than investing specially for the people who they got, they want to upskill and everything, they leave that to one side, they've capitalized on the apprenticeship system to skill up the people who are already in work. So I am thinking that actually rather than spending this much of money, they're using the money that they've already put into the apprenticeship for getting new people in work for their already staff in there. Is that right? And it kind of also the point that was made here about how over the last uh, many years uh, investment in training has dropped. So it kind of all makes sense that everybody is interested in training. Nobody wants to spend any money on it. Government has come up with this scheme. Let's capitalize on it and use it for our existing people rather than bringing new people on board. Okay, we, uh, that was a great question because that's I've I've thought that as well, and that's that's what I understood by the way from a visit to Rolls Royce recently that it was being used that way. So I'll be interested to hear Rob's um, thing. So, anyways, uh, that young lady there. Um, so I go to a state school, but it's very very focused on getting people into universities. So I've just started sixth form, and we had. Um, careers guidance sort of post sick from education which was really brilliant um but I went in there and I sat down and um the lady I was talking to she said so have you decided which university you're going to apply to yet to which I kind of thought for a minute was like I said well I'm not entirely sure that that's what I want to do you see I've been reading about these apprenticeships and actually sound really interesting to which she kind of stared at me blankly for a little while and said so you want to take a year out and then go to university um, which I was like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, and obviously, thank you so much for coming here and um, giving out this information. This has been really interesting for me to be able to come and hear about this. Um, I'm just wondering how we can get this information to schools, how we can put this out more widely, how more people can, can find out about these other opportunities. Thank you very much. Um, following on from that point um, directly, so I'm a, I was a school teacher for a number of years and I've moved into teaching... Uh, in a private company, apprenticeships, because uh, that's much more interesting to me now than, than, than school teaching. Um, and I can say for that the schools are in competition now with apprenticeship providers because schools are really in the game of trying to keep people on into A-levels and then, as the point was made earlier, converting those into university entrants. And uh, there's a real there's a real um, mood out there amongst schools to discourage people from going into apprenticeships. Um, but the, uh, the, the thing I wanted to raise was this, this tension between the academic and the non-academic, which I'm still trying to come to terms with in apprenticeships. Um, because in, on one level, uh, the, the thing that I think is undersold about apprenticeships is, the, is the, the heights that you can rise to with them and the uh, the level of qualification it will give you um, against this idea that um, an apprenticeship offers an, a model for, for someone who just doesn't see themselves as academic. Now, I, I'm, when I was teaching in schools, I really um, believed in the idea of, of a knowledge-rich education for everybody, right? But where I began to find myself in tension with, with people who also believe that was that they just believe that every child wants to go away and, and, and read very ac- academic books for the rest of their life, and they don't. Um, 
And so there's this tension in apprenticeships between pushing the high-level aspect of it and also providing a route for, for what, for want of a better word, might be non-academic young people. Um, and in the previous debate, just to, to finish, in the previous debate that Tom and I were in, um, there was a university student saying, see, the trouble with apprenticeships is, uh, especially at the higher level, is that they're targeted at a particular socio-economic group and we still have a two-tier system in which if you're Brighton of a certain class, you go to university, and if you're not of that, then you can do a high-level apprenticeship, and that's not the same thing. So sorry to go on, but there's yeah. these tensions there. So I, I think there are some good apprenticeships, but I think there are acres and acres of really poor quality stuff out there. So um, we run a, a pension consultancy. We've got somebody doing a chartered accountancy apprenticeship. She's doing great, but that, it's kind of academic. That's not a non-academic uh, apprenticeship. We've got people doing business administration apprenticeships, and the training providers range from utterly incompetent to just about okay. Yeah, and they are teaching things like behaviours. You know, do you know how to phone in sick? You know, th I'm not joking. That's 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 what they count as training people. Um, and and uh, you know, that's not that's not in some past level of apprenticeship. That's what they're doing now. Um, so, so I do think there's a, there's a real problem. And I think, you know, the point, the point that's been made that, you know, when so much of our industry is just crap jobs, you know, apprenticeships in retail are, are going to be pretty poor. Uh, and the problem is, you know, everybody's imagining that a non-academic apprenticeship is about engineering or something, carpentry or joinery, something like that. But it's not a lot of it. It's just about cleaning, uh, Stacking shelves. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the problem of, of, of saying to a young person, do an apprenticeship, is really difficult because it's hard for them, I think, to spot the difference between something that could be absolutely fantastic and something that will be really, really awful. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, but, uh, you know, to consider, which is when I was at school, most people left school to do apprenticeships, but they were in big local companies they were expanding and they had an obligation well they didn't have they wanted but didn't they weren't doing it as a duty i mean they needed to recruit and train local people but but you could sort of see what they were but the i, I was going to ask about this kind of broadening out of the numbers of you can say we've got a national series of apprenticeships across all topics but that can actually mean that you're basically turning the gig economy into an apprenticeship, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's like, sort of, what does that mean? I mean, it depends what your... Do you need to have an apprenticeship in a rubbish... I mean, do you want a qualification in a rubbish, non-skilled job by pretending it's skilled, if you see what I mean? Anyway, I don't know. Um, right, one last, and then up to the panel. Yeah? OK, I don't know if, how useful this is, but I'm, I'm just confirming what the panel says, really. Um, Hilary... Uh, is it Hilary? Yes, sir. sorry, Hillary was saying that, um, you know, people are given rubbish jobs to do. And it shows that the demand comes from the training provider. Um, I worked at, uh, in FE. I work for a trade union now, but I work, worked in FE before. And um, I was asked to start off the advanced diploma. It was quite some time ago. It was at level three. It wasn't an apprenticeship. Um, and the course wasn't very well designed. But the real problem came when, when the students came and 
uh, I was told that the, the, the reason for the new advanced diploma was they would spend some time in industry and the, de the, the demand for this qualification came from industry, in fact. But when the course started, I, had to go, I, I said, right, okay, where's the 1,000 hours from the co-op or where's the 100,000 hours from Barclays Bank for these people studying IT? And uh, it wasn't there. I had to start ringing round uh, local employers and saying, can you take a student to give them work experience? So, you know, this is what's happening in Hillary's case. It is not the demand isn't coming from the employer. It is the training provider ringing up employers and saying, please, can you take somebody? And, and almost begging them to take them. And when they turn up, they don't know what to do with them. So they, you know, they do their best. Okay, uh, Ruth, anything you want to come back on? Yeah, three quick points. Three, three quick points, totally agree with you. The other point I wanted to make about, I want to kick back against these rubbish jobs. There aren't any rubbish jobs out there. They might be low paid, that might involve emptying bins or copy documents, but they are important jobs as part of the economy. So it's not a rubbish job. The question is whether, whether we do want to have an apprenticeship there. Retail doesn't need to be rubbish as such. In Switzerland, if you're doing an apprenticeship as a retail assistant, it takes three years. You learn the customer side of it, you learn the administrative side of it, and you know every single product you're selling in and out. So you're an expert in it. So retail or anything else can be high-level apprenticeships. Second point here about the um, divide between academic and non-academic, I think you got it wrong. The problem is between the non-academic or the practical vocational work and that we're actually offering soft skills in training the way where we should have academic knowledge that is being taught. That's what I think. And on another point, which goes kind of back to what Rob was saying, we don't have fake apprenticeships anymore. It's all better now because we have standards, and these standards were developed by employers. I'm not convinced about that because you know better than I probably that most of these standards were actually developed by large companies. Smaller companies had very little say because they might not have had the time or the capacity to do it. And the other problem, of course, is, and, and I want to quote Adam Marshall, Annette, who is the um, director of the British um, Chamber of Commerce, he always mentions, when you talk to him about apprenticeships, he always mentions his 5, 10, and 15-year rule. But it takes an employer five years to hear about the new policy or legislation that is coming in. That's what he says. It takes 10 years for an employer to actually do something about it and 15 years to embed it. So if you're looking at, you know, you said we had frameworks before, now we have standards and everything is better. I disagree with that because we have far too many legislative and um, policy changes in the apprenticeship sector. 1994, we had the modern apprenticeships introduced. 2004, in England, we went back to apprenticeships. Then we had the frameworks, now we have the standards. Industry cannot keep up with those changes. They can't implement it as on such a short time basis. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, that was very helpful. Harriet, anything you want to pick up on? Um, yeah, I wanted to, um, what you said earlier about um, the role of universities and whether they should be churning out um, high-skilled workers, um, I think that's important to pick up on. I, I do criticise universities quite a lot um, for not focusing so much on skills, and it really, 
isn't their role, but they should be preparing people to go and go into um, to be getting jobs, and that's the whole point of gaining a degree, is so, so that you can get a good job afterwards. And a lot of people that are going into universities haven't even, um, you know, like done a pay round or or work today in their life really. So I think they maybe maybe it's not their role, but maybe they should be doing something something to um, tackle that because so many people are going through university system and there clearly is a problem with the skills gap. Um, I also want to get onto the point about the information scores and I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so it's very annoying um, that there's no, there's no absolutely no information about apprenticeships. I went to a state school as well and you would expect that uh, you know there's a there should be an even well there should be one in every school but there should be an even bigger push really for apprenticeships as a lot of people wouldn't actually want to go to university um, but I think that to solve that really we need to try and change our opinion of apprenticeships and to change our opinion of apprenticeships we need to be getting really good apprenticeships which you know people are going to be becoming very successful from and you know like just some ones that we can actually get some great skills going into engineering and um, getting people into these sectors. So I think that's one thing that would really, really help with that. Because at the moment, schools, um, the reason that they want everyone to go to university is because university is seen as such a um, prestigious thing and all the schools are interested about is the stats of how many, what percentage of the cohort are gonna go and move on to that. Um, and that brings me on to degree apprenticeships um, as well. I wanted to pick up on that because I think it's important. I don't think there's actually a lot of degree apprenticeships out there, but I think that it could be brilliant to work a bit more on uh, partnering with universities and top companies and getting people that the degrees, because clearly, clearly we love people with degrees, um, but then also getting them the industry placement that they need. Okay, thanks, Harriet. Very interesting. Um, okay, so, uh, uh, Rob, anything? You can't yeah. answer everything, so just a couple No, of I things. can't. Um, but, I, but I might be able to bring a couple of things to life. Um, Harriet, uh, the business admin that you were describing is a framework. Accountancy is an apprenticeship, so it's a standards-based apprenticeship. So you've illustrated the difference that I'm trying to bring to life. And actually, the current frameworks will not all be replaced by a standard. So actually, it's not a one-for-one -one replacement, and standards are being turned off in um, uh, July 2020. Uh, so uh, that, that sort of, you, you know, you've really brought to life there what I've been trying to illustrate about the migration. And I find it very interesting that Ruth has her 5, 10, 15, uh, 15 rule. In terms of answering the initial question on um, this sort of slight confusion, a... I'm very, very clear that an apprenticeship is a job with training. So actually you have to have the job and then you go through a period of development on which you are an apprentice and you go on a development journey. And just to bring where that might be relevant in, um, in, in modern life to illustrate it, let's say you're a research chemist. You've, you've spent your life working for a small or a large company as a research chemist. You're then appointed to a new role as a manager You've probably done a degree as a research chemist. You know, you've worked, you're pretty good at that. But actually, does that necessarily make you a good manager? And one of the things that it is felt that's really weak about the UK economy is the performance of our management. So why shouldn't that research scientist go on an apprenticeship to be trained as a manager instead of us thinking that just because they've been a really good research scientist, 
they've got a birthright to suddenly become a very effective manager. And, quick, quick, quick. and um, I think that's also what's really important about the degree apprenticeship point, is it's not about getting a degree and then doing a bit of work experience. It's about a job within which you do an element of training, and that training is at degree standard. So we just need to be really clear what it's doing. I can talk a bit more about training providers, but if someone wants to ask a, okay. another question about that, Claire will no doubt give me a chance to talk about okay. that. Right, so we, look, we're... We are right at the end of the festival, so Tom, and then I've got four hands, and then you'll all have a minute each, and that'll be it. Right, Tom? I'm perhaps sort of controversial, just disagree, so I don't normally disagree with Rob, um, certainly not publicly, um, but on the issue of, um, you know, on the issue of management <coughs> degrees, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic that the Institute will pay Cranfield University £27,000, because that's the funding band that the um, Level 7 uh, degree apprenticeship is in. Um, I think the the moral challenge we've got here around some of this is, for example, again, it's only anecdotally, I mean, I, you know, I sat down with the chief financial officer of a FTSE 100 company. His company obviously pays the levy. They see how much money's in the pot. And he's gone and, you know, had a word with his chief executive officer and he said, oh, we've got this lovely MBA here at Cranfield. You can do that with the apprenticeship levy for £27,000. Now, you've got to ask yourself, you know, with that kind of employer behaviour, which it may be at that individual employer level quite rational, but as we've seen, two-thirds of apprenticeships now are for the over-25s. Many of them are in the workforce for upskilling purposes. Mm -hmm. And has been back to the, top, um, you know, the title of this particular session, there's been a collapse in opportunities for the 16 to 24-year-old uh, route. So I think there is a, you know, despite all the many successes and more recently of the apprenticeship model, I do think there's some big questions and some big challenges around what should its focus be? Where should public funding, including the levy, be best targeted to get the best possible return. Again, controversially, I'd like to blow up the student loans company, not literally, but I'd like to blow up that £8 billion uh, pounds a year of taxpayers' money that goes through it, exclusively only for those doing full-time bachelor degrees, tends to be for those under the age of 25. Why can't we allow that money in a more flexible way to be available from 18 to 85 years old for university education, yes, as wage subsidies to change behaviours of employers towards young people and apprentices. For those that want to set up their own uh, businesses in startups, we don't use that funding in that kind of flexible way, and we should. Yeah, I, I, I did think that if they want the one person to become a manager and they want to train them to become a manager, they should train them to be a manager. <laughs> it's not an apprenticeship. That's just, that's just a... What's that about? That's not what anyone has ever thought of as an apprenticeship in their lives, right? That is, like, that is basically cheating, right? So that is cheating. The employer thinks, we want you to change jobs and upskill. Oh, I know. And then we'll cut it an apprenticeship, and then we'll get a pat on the back for encouraging apprenticeships, whereas it's just cheating, that, in my opinion. Right, Phil Mullen is sitting in the audience. I'm going to use slightly more diplomatic language, but the same sort of thing. Oh, right, OK. Everyone Panic. wants top quality... Top quality apprenticeships, and everyone wants better on-the-job training for the people already in work. But I would suggest that the bigger objective problem we've got is that you can't have top quality apprenticeships if you don't have top quality jobs. You can't have decent apprenticeships if you don't have decent jobs. So what I would suggest is that your institute and your federation should 
spend more time highlighting that particular issue rather than trying to find a ways around it. I'm quite sure sincerely you want to crack down on fake apprenticeships, but the point is apprenticeships in most people's minds are about training people for work. But if there was, isn't decent work, that's what you should be focusing on saying, we're being given or we're operating an environment in which it's not possible to achieve the top quality. Uh, because what we here have here, just to summarize, is a, is a period problem rather than a cohort problem. What we have is over the last 20 years, but increasingly over the last 15, 10 years, the quality of the jobs which has been created, no disrespect uh, uh, to the individuals, it's not a problem of the individual not being prepared for it, but if those jobs are of a lower quality, then it's impossible for you to be able to meet the objectives or to meet the, uh, 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 the, the aspirations which, which you do have. And it's just by necessarily going to be the case that because young people are entering the labor force, they are going to be disproportionately impacted by the fact that there are more insecure, low-paying, low-productivity jobs. So you've got to publicize that in order to be able to achieve it. Otherwise, it is, as Claire said, really cheating and uh, being disingenuous. I sort of came towards the end of the sort of debate, um, but all I wanted to say was um, I do think, like with the youth today, this is definitely a a class issue, so you may have addressed that already before I arrived. But um, grow, where I grew up, my school, it was a really, it was like John Humphreys did a documentary that was the, like, the shittiest school basically in England. But the demographic, well, what we went on to do is I'm in a band, some people are Hollywood actresses, some people were in So Solid Crew, some people in prison. But the thing was, we um, totally embraced academic and practical intelligence which is what I actually walked in at the point that you were saying that. And you, not many people really talk about that, if you know what I mean. And I think it's really important for young people to have hope and to know that they can do things on their own. So when you come from a place or a family where you don't have money or your father or your uncle's going to give you a hand up or whatever, to know that you can do stuff like something your own, I think, is really important. So apprenticeships give people validity in the sense of like it makes them know that they can create something themselves. Uh, but I don't think it should be exploited. I think it should actually be really championed as much as sort of um, degrees are. Okay, thank you. Very helpful. Right. Okay, so that gentleman uh, there, please. Yeah, it's, it's slightly related to Phil's point in the sense that this idea that there are no terrible jobs flies in the face of the fact that a, a terrible job is defined by it's not being needing to be done. And it's not needing to be done is related to how we employ technology to transform jobs. And the elephant in the room, as it were, is the fact that in the absence of perhaps something like a strong trade union movement, employers have got almost no incentive to invest in making jobs more, in enabling jobs more by technology to avoid the pressure of wage increases. And unless that happens, and unless we automate more jobs more terrible, horrible jobs like working in an Amazon factory out of existence, then there'll be no, as Phil said, there'll be no better jobs for people to move into. So it does rest entirely with the fact that there are hundreds of terrible jobs and no incentive to get rid of them. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, I kick off with your remark, um, Claire, when you give us that example about the sixth form as being taken around that uh, thing and being, you know, told that at the end of the day, um, you really didn't need this. And for me, the whole debate has centered on that, kicked off by perhaps Hattie, in terms of uh, the lack of education, the lack <coughs> of advice, rather, at school level uh, for, um, for kids in terms of um, apprenticeships. I'm reminded by Grey's Elegy in a, in a country churchyard, which some of you may or may not know, 
But one of the biggest uh, things that impressed me in that poem is the fact that the, the poet wanders around and looks at those graves and reflects that there are many there buried who never had a chance to actually realize the skills that they didn't even know they had themselves. All the more important that teachers, before even careers advice, bring it out, bring out the kid's potential in the first place. After four years teaching in Scotland, I came to England to teach in the early 70s and was absolutely shot to bits when I was placed as a head of department, English department, in a, a secondary, what was called a secondary modern school, where there was no hope at all. Kids, uh, kids came through, uh, they, they got the local leaving certificate, and later on CSE was introduced, but there was no expectation to go any further than that. That was quite horrifying, I thought. And leaping, Last quickly, sentence. leaping very quickly now to a... It's interesting to hear what Tom said, and I quote, life rafts and stagnation uh, in terms of his own family and, of course, have his own start with one O level. And also... No, no, you've got to... No, no, also. So okay. I'm really sorry. Right, Rob, just thank you. No, no, it's very interesting. Okay. Got to stop, got to stop. You've got to stop. Sorry, sir. Right, you've got to stop. Right, everyone, I, I'm going to ask the uh, panel to uh, sum up in the reverse order. I actually think this has been really interesting. I actually thought that contribution at the back was really uh, interesting just in terms of what these things mean in the real world, by the way. But, I, but I, you know, what it means to people to be validated, what it really means to have a job, all of these kind of options that one gets. <coughs> one thing that I don't think we have quite untangled is that there's education and then there's training. And the two things are not the same thing. So actually, you can be an academic, you can love academic... You don't actually have to get any exams but you can love reading, for example, or you can go off and be an academic. But that's not, it doesn't matter how academic you are, that's not the same as being trained. Somebody needs to do some training, and in order to do some training, you need to know what you're training for, and that's jobs. And in order to train people for jobs, you need to have some jobs, if you see what I mean. So I think we need to untangle a number of things. So, in reverse order, brilliant panel, by the way, really stimulating discussion. Ruth, please. I want to um, say, say something about the schools and the whole idea that schools should be promoting advice and providing more information. We've got 500,000 apprenticeships and 8 million youngsters from the, from the age of 15 to 19. 8 million. So the schools wouldn't do any good if they keep promoting it because the apprenticeships don't exist. So what would you be going into? The other problem we have, and that's where schools can do something about it, is... And, and that's a recent um, Ofsted report, a good, for a change, a good Ofsted report, where employers are really reluctant to, to employ school leavers for three reasons. They lack presentation and communication skills. In interviews, they come across as immature and unreliable, and they lack generic knowledge and skills. So my advice, apart from kickstarting the economy, on being, having more productive um, industries is that schools actually have to provide a good quality education so that school leavers, they can read, they can write, they can do maths, they have a broad knowledge base. And please, yes, do teach them to be punctual, reliable and persevere. And that would be a big relief for employers because one of the things employers say at the moment we have to compensate for what is missing in schools. And that costs time and resources, and which the employers don't have. 
Okay, thank you very much, Ruth. Um, and next up is Harriet. Okay, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, no, we don't need apprenticeships for stacking shelves and these sorts of things. We need, huh? need high-quality, widely-valued, widely-sought-after qualifications to give people that are from all different backgrounds a means of getting to these high-level jobs. And that's what we need. Thank you very much. Harriet, Rob. I think my, my, my pitch is that there is a significant evolution going on in the apprenticeship scene. And actually, there are over two and a half million people on apprenticeships in the country today. Uh, 500,000 of those are on the standards-based apprenticeships rather than frameworks, which is the previous model. So I'm trying to illustrate that we're seeing that evolution and you know, we're trying to move to something better which will generate the sort of quality that Harriet has just talked about. And um, I would take you back to my initial pitch, if you can accept that. I'll take you back to my initial pitch, and that is the importance of perceptions and understanding the change, and that needing to fuel uh, what we do for our young people and the options that we lay out for them. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, and thank you, by the way, I know you've come in for some stick, but you've taken it with some style, so thank you for that. Uh, uh, Tom? That's what a good old British military training background does for you, I have to say. No, he's... Uh, he's thought, an apprentice, 35 um, years of yeah, apprenticeship. A proper he high thought, quality... He thought the British Army was tough. Come the battle of ideas, anything <laughs> yeah, can happen. Right, exactly. Tom? Well, look, there's a big red sign out that says wrap up. So yes, I know. Three, no, three, three, we, three we've read that brief, now. We have yeah, read it, yes. Yeah. yes. We, yeah. Three very brief um, points. I mean, the first, just to reassure um, Harriet, who's you know, made some excellent points um, this evening, that the 16-week the shelf stacking apprentices are gone. They are no more. Um, the Institute does not fund those, you'll be pleased to know. Um, the second point, just really a plug for um, my own booklet on uh, world-class apprenticeships. Are they the age, uh, are they the answer to the age of stagnation? So some of the debates and issues that we've been uh, discussing uh, this evening is expanded upon uh, ad finitum, it feels like, in that particular uh, publication. And then, um, thirdly, just to thank you, Claire, uh, for inviting the Federation and uh, Rob and other colleagues uh, along to the battle. I mean, I've had a, a, a fantastic day. It certainly opened up my eyes. And, you know, to get some of the quality as well of uh, contributions and speeches from the floor um, are certainly things I've got to think about on my way home. Uh, to Sussex this evening. So thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, okay, everyone. So I don't want to do over-mutual over thanking, but anyway, to the Federation of Awarding Bodies, I really do want to thank you because um, it's quite difficult to decide whether to do a session, the last thing at the end of a festival on apprenticeships and have anything like a quality discussion, and we just did. And so I think it's, it's great to have had the support to have done that. It's also the case that I'd like to thank the volunteers who have basically been trying to shut me up. Uh, so we started late and have rambled on and everyone... But can we actually give them a bit of a clap? Because they've worked bloody hard. <laughs>